What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode 113 of the Talking Chop podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on this fun Sunday afternoon. Joining me for first time in a while, it's nice to have you back, my friend. It's Scott Coleman. What's up, man? What's up, Brad? How have you been? Uh, you know, living the dream. The Braves are generally good at baseball. Uh, we should say at the top here, we are actually starting to record this uh, in the bottom of the seventh inning of Sunday's game. Uh, currently, the Braves are down 8-2, to two, uh, but uh, both Scott and I had to uh, sort of build our schedules around this a little bit, so we were going a little early. The game was uh, the game was dragging quite a bit. Uh, we were hoping it would be over by the time we had to start recording this thing, but uh, you know, barring a crazy comeback, the Braves are going to lose on Sunday and lose the series, but I promise by the end of the podcast, we'll probably know the result, so just fair warning on that, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, everything else is good. It's one of those things where uh, it's always interesting in Braves land right now. The Braves are playing well, with the exception of this weekend, of course. Even you know, although Saturday went pretty well, and there was a uh, earlier this week there was a Tuesday hiccup that nobody enjoyed. Did you watch the game on Tuesday? The game that everybody was really really mad about afterwards. Yeah, it was miserable. <laughs> That's probably the best way to put that. I think it's like it's almost so far away now that it's like not worth talking about, like you know, blow by blow. But it had every every making of a brutal loss between uh, you know replay weirdness, uh, umpire weirdness. General General Barb's this it had it kind of had it all so it was nice to see yeah. the Braves sort of bounce back from that but uh, that, that that's one of those one of those days where in the middle of it, it's like oh man maybe this is the time where things go south but hopefully that's not the case yeah I think it was a combination of blowing it late right I mean Acuna hits that awesome homer late to to give Atlanta a lead and then and then Viz couldn't get anybody out I think that alone was frustrating and then you mix in just the the debacle with the replay and obviously the, you know, the one at home plate, I thought watching live and obviously replay, I thought Camargo was safe. And then when they don't overturn it, the Braves blow their challenge and then get called out. I think the very next pitch on a blatantly wrong out call on third base, just kind of compiled to it. So that was uh, probably the most frustrating loss of the year, other than of course the, the 10 to two uh, game in Chicago that obviously turned bad. So that was rough. But like you said, they were able to come around on, on Wednesday and kind of get back on the, in the winning ways. So um, it was good to see them not let that linger and, and turn into something bigger. Yeah, if they had lost Wednesday uh, and then had the rain out Thursday and then come out and uh, what we presume to be a serious loss to Miami, that would have been pretty brutal. But So the, the, the win on Wednesday feels uh, – significant in that way because if they had suddenly you know lost four out of five here um after that loss it would have been kind of brutal but uh yeah anyway w- without getting too deep into that uh sort of the headliner of news wise on sunday afternoon but actually i guess it was probably even sunday morning or, or at least close to it was the braves announcing that jose bautista has been released um that was information that wasn't exactly you know mind-blowing it was a little bit interesting to hear um sort of in the moments leading up to that that uh alex and had called a press conference because that's something you don't normally hear we were kind of speculating offline in our slack chat um just to see what that could possibly be but bautista was sort of the overwhelming theme and that that of course ended up being what it was Uh, i will definitely read some quotes from anthopolis to make uh, make this thing seem a little bit even more obvious to a lot of people but what was your first reaction when you saw that bautista was uh, was released even though you know obviously it wasn't a huge surprise yeah, they. It wasn't for lack of giving him a chance. What was it? Two and a half, three weeks that he was given a chance to stick, and you know when he was already getting passed over by Flaherty and Culberson for at bats, he had to figure it was kind of coming soon. Um, you know, Anthopoulos, and you touched on it. Anthopoulos kind of mentioned in in his in his press conference that hey, we we tried, it wasn't working out, and after talking with a guy who he's worked alongside for many years, it was it was just kind of in everybody's best interest to go their separate ways. So. Um, again, it, it, I get where the Braves were coming at. I think it was a worthwhile, 
chance. I mean, I think he was paid a million dollar, had a million dollar contract. So they probably paid him what 50,000 bucks for the three weeks he was in Atlanta. Um, so because of that, it was a worthwhile chance. He did help out. He, he kind of helped, uh, bring a little bit of power, but again, his defense was, was pretty rough. And I think most expected him to be that it was just a matter of if he was going to hit so well that you could overlook the defense. Uh, and obviously that didn't happen. He had a slow bat. And other than a few chances against lefties, he really wasn't hitting very much. So as you said, I think it was some to be expected. Um, and it was, it was a worthwhile chance, but as everyone kind of thought, whenever that, that signing happened, um, it, it certainly wasn't long lived. Yeah. I mean, credit to the Braves first off for not letting this ride too long. I think that's something that we said on the podcast a couple different times after they signed Batista. Uh, I had absolutely no problem with it at all. People were really upset about it, mostly because, you know, Ryan Flaherty at the time was super hot, which never was going to continue and obviously has not continued. Uh, so that was actually kind of prescient on the Braves part. And everybody saw that coming that was, that was paying any sort of close attention that Flaherty was going to cool off and the Braves tried to get ahead of it a little bit with Batista. I had no problem with it whatsoever at the time I still don't um, and especially because it was clear they were they were not going to give him a huge long leash and the fact that he didn't look great you know he, he's 37 years old he looked like he looked like that um, was the case honestly you know his plate, his plate discipline was still there you could definitely see sort of the remnants of the player that he used to be and you know a couple of uh, you know at least you know bright moments over the course of his uh, short stay but just in general Batsby was not there and I think honestly long term he probably could have held on and been a quality-ish bench bat sort of pinch hitter against left-handed pitching but but yeah. um, it's important to note that like Anthopoulos basically said that uh, this is the quote from him. He said, and I quote, we agreed if there's not going to be any playing time uh, and there's not going to be any at bats here, that's not just right for him. He needed to get going. We just agreed that was the best to give him uh, that chance to get that playing time, end quote. So it seems like uh, people people were asking me that on uh, on Twitter and asking the podcast that on on, uh, on Twitter and just kind of, you know, why they have to cut him versus um, just keeping him around as a bench bat. And that would be the reason why, you know, in, in a vacuum, uh, I think it's pretty clear he's still like uh, he's probably going to be a better hitter than Ryan Flaherty in a big picture sense. But Flaherty's got versatility and uh, doesn't mind being a bench player, whereas Bautista clearly wants to at least play. And if he doesn't want to do that, he might just retire at this point in time. So one of those things where I think you know ultimately this kind of was the only path that was going to happen once it was clear he wasn't going to be able to hit enough um, because the defense was never going to be good as we kind of all saw um, kind of immediately and even in the minors it was like all right well he better hit and that was kind of what we said as well and, and you know he did he just didn't hit quite enough so no big surprise there. I guess the other big thing as part of that release and part of that press conference for Anthopoulos is that uh, Johan Camargo is going to be the everyday third baseman. That's the way that he uh, described that. Not Again, not a huge surprise there, but what do you what do you make of Camargo as the everyday guy there? I, I guess just choosing him over the other the other very uh, very uninspiring options. So it seems pretty <laughs> obvious, but uh, what would you make of that? Yeah, you nailed it right there. I think he was pretty clearly the best option of the, of the couple of candidates they had. Obviously, you don't want Charlie Culberson going out there every day. You mentioned Flaherty has, has really cooled down, as everyone expected. Um, and yeah, I think with Johan and Anthopoulos touched on it, and if you look at his, his batted ball profile and, and just some of his, he's shown a little bit of power. He's a pretty good athlete. He's by far and away the best uh, defensive option at third base. We saw, I think, the closeout Saturday night game. He just has an absolute cannon. Um, so as far as the defense goes, I think that makes sense. He's a switch hitter, which helps make things a little easier at the back end. Um, and again, he's, he's younger. Um, he's shown at least the ability over his, I guess, probably calendar year now, uh, that he can somewhat hit major league pitching. He's never going to be an elite hitter by any means, or even an above average one, but he's not going to go up there and embarrass you if he can crank, uh, a couple of extra base hits and, and provide some lower end power and get on base in a reasonable clip. 
he's probably worth taking a chance on. I don't think you or I think he's by any means the long-term option. Uh, but it gives Austin Riley some more time. Um, and, then, and of course, if they want to make a move and bring in an outside third baseman for the stretch run, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit, uh, he's, he's, in my opinion, far and away the best option at third. And, um, and I guess the Braves are kind of ride it out from here and, and be able to adjust down the road. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, I think we've said, both of us have said numerous times that we don't think Camargo is going to be an everyday option moving forward for this team, especially uh, you know, on their current trajectory as hopefully a, uh, you know, at, least, at least a French playoff team this year and then uh, hopefully in the future even brighter than that. I don't, I don't see him as an everyday guy, and I think there's a lot of value in his versatility and the, and the fact that he can play everywhere and he's a good athlete, all that fun stuff, his arm, as you mentioned. Um, the walk rate's very encouraging, I will say, this year. It's a pretty small sample, but he's walking, I think, 17% of the time coming into Sunday. That's uh, very nice to see, and that he's probably going to need that because you know batting average wise, I'm not sure he's never going to be that kind of guy. And the power wise, it's he has a little bit of pop, but you know if you look at the minors, it was never exactly a profile of the, of the huge of this huge power bat either. So I think Camargo is the best option. I would never say otherwise. I think people equate us saying that we don't think he's going to be a long term third base starter as not thinking he's the best option now. That's not the case. Uh, it can be both. He can be the best option now and not a long term option. And I think that's exactly what the case is, frankly, because the other options are just wholly uninspiring, frankly. I think, you know, Charlie Culberson, we're kind of, uh, you know, we've been pretty clear on Culberson as, a, as really even a fringe major leaguer, frankly. And Flaherty, I get it at this point. He was super hot early on, and he has some value in other ways. But Camargo is far and away the best option. So playing him every day makes all kinds of sense, and we'll see, uh, you know, how, how that's going to work. We should bridge into the fact that, you know, we got a ton of questions about the future at third base. Frankly, uh, one of them came from Jackson Peebles, who asked what the Braves will have to likely give up in a uh, trade for Mike Moustakis or Jed Lowry. Um, there's other other options out there. Of course, there's the Josh Donaldson, Manny Machado tier, which feels less likely. But where are you at on the whole pursuit of a uh, of, a, of at least a stop, at least a stopgap third baseman versus the possibility of Austin Riley coming up? Because that's of course been the topic of conversation in the last couple of weeks is Austin Riley potentially being in Atlanta sooner rather than later. So I guess what do you think is the most likely scenario, and what would you be trying mm-hmm. to do? Obviously, we don't we don't know what it, what it would actually cost to go trade for a guy, but you know, reasonably, yeah. reasonably uh, like you know, put put together a reasonable cost and just assume that and uh, think if that would be the best option or not. Yeah, absolutely. It was. I think it was Buster only this past week who had an article that if you're a, a team looking to sell like Baltimore, like Kansas City, like potentially Toronto, the way they've been struggling, um, the third base market is going to be really heavy this year. I mean, you have Moustakas, you have Machado potentially, you have uh, Donaldson, um, Jed Lowry is having a monster year. I mean, there's some, you know, there are some very good options out there. So in that sense, you wonder if it'll be a less of a return than what you might expect for me, as far as the trading or just rolling with Camargo or Riley is obviously going to come down to the cost and who knows what it is. Sometimes at the deadline costs are far more than what you would think. And other times, I mean, you look back, someone mentioned the JD Martinez trade last year to Arizona. I mean, Arizona gave up practically nothing to get JD Martinez and he was the best hitter in baseball the final two months of the season. Uh, and they obviously use that to reach the playoffs. So in that sense, you never know if the cost is going to be multiple top 10 prospects for two months of a Josh Donaldson. Of course you don't do it. Or even a Machado, I guess if they're in first place, you might think about doing it for a player like Machado. But even then I'd be hesitant because you really have no real chance, I think, of re-signing him or re-signing him personally. Um, you know, a lesser tier, Mike Moustakis is having a good year. Of course, we were all kind of discussing all winter long if they should or shouldn't sign him and he's having a good year 
Um, I think for the next six weeks or so, they will roll with Camargo. Uh, they don't seem to be in any real hurry, uh, nor should they be with Austin Riley. He's a guy who's only had, I think, something like 200 plate appearances in AA, and he's, of course, just getting his feet wet in AAA. So at least until maybe July 1st, I think they'll roll with Camargo, um, evaluate then where Riley's at. If he continues to hit, then maybe you give him a shot and transition Camargo back to the utility role. Um, and then of course it's, it's kind of the cheap way of saying, we'll see where they're at in two months. If they're in first place, maybe they do try to get a, a Donaldson or a Machado or a Moustakas. Um, but if not, I think, I think you just kind of stay the course and keep your assets and, uh, see if you can make a run with what you currently have. Totally agree. And by the way, uh, forgive the beeping in the background. I'm sure everybody can hear now. Um, Uh-oh. my uh, fire alarm's <laughs> going off. So there's, there's that, uh, we're going to, we're going to keep recording because that's what we have to do. But, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> Uh, one of those things where uh, there's nothing you can do about it. So uh, here we are. Uh, yeah, in terms of the return at third base, I think it's pretty clear that you know a one-year guy is not going to be something that they're going to go crazy all in for, and I wouldn't recommend doing that. I do think Mustakas and Lowry are more reasonable because you just the price tag is going to have to be lower. You can't imagine. I mean, I guess Donaldson would make some sense because of the previous tie, but you know they're not going to sell low on him either. So. I think um, that I think Mustakas and Lowry are more likely than the other two guys, but Riley probably is more likely than that. I think, which is kind of crazy to consider that Riley might be the most likely option, but that feels like it might be the case. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, <laughs> there we go. Much better. Uh, I think with Riley, he certainly has the most long-term upside of, of the bunch. But I think at this point, and you look at the rest of the roster right now too. I'm not sure it makes sense to to push him through right now. I'm not sure that an Austin Riley at third base is going to be the difference between this team uh, contending and not contending just because there's some other talent on the roster. So I, I think we're in agreement here. See where he's at. Let him continue to get experience in the minors. Not everybody is going to be a Ronald Acuna type who can blow through the you know all three levels of the minors and, and then come up and be immediately successful. Um, there are some things he could obviously work on. One, just from a plate appearance perspective, and two, you look around and you look at his numbers, and he's obviously shown the power and, and ability to make contact. But he is striking out at higher than a, I think, more than a fourth of his plate appearances. Last I looked, his his strikeout rate was 26 or 27 percent. His walk rate is only 8 percent. Not that those are prohibitive numbers at the big league level for being a successful player. There are a lot of power hitters with with those similar kinds of levels. But again, it's not as if he's bored at AAA and is not even getting challenged and is going two for four every night and just, uh, you know, and not even being challenged. So a little extra time in, in AAA doesn't hurt. I know Anthopolis has said multiple times they're going to be more conservative than, than the last front office when it comes to promotions and uh, him getting another four or five weeks while you have a, at least a capable third baseman with Camargo, I think probably makes the most sense for all parties involved. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully the beeping noise is a little bit less now. I had it muted and now I'm in a closet. So, there's that. Uh, <laughs> that at any is rate, some dedication to the pod right there. Listen, we got to record when we got to record, and uh, hopefully it will come off soon. But uh, that's that's what you got. That's sort of the live behind the scenes experience. When uh, normally, not, if we if we had a ton of time, I would tell Scott, "Hey, man, let's come back in 20 minutes." But we don't have a ton of time today, so it's not your house, right? It's like a neighbor. It is like. a. Uh, I'm in a apartment complex, so it's yeah. uh, not me. Not I'm nothing's going crazy here, and it happens fairly regularly, honestly, which is pretty fun. I just say, if you smell um, smoke, if you got to stop, we can stop. Yeah. If, if <laughs> If something is actually on fire, I will. Uh, I'll be sure to get out of here. But anyway, uh, yeah, it, third base is going to be a, co- a topic of conversation for the next, you know, weeks and months. I think you know it's almost become the fact. I feel like we're talking about it too much, but uh, it's just such an obvious spot that you have to 
discuss it, especially as long as the Braves are hanging in this uh, playoff race. And right now they're obviously you know at the top of the NL, so they're not going anywhere for right for right now. There's gonna be a lot of discussion about third base, and uh, yeah, I think somebody else will be playing third. I mean, I guess Camargo could just get scorching hot here, but if you ask me who the third baseman's gonna be in August, I think it'll either be Austin Riley or someone they trade for. Um, yeah. But I'm not 100% sure on that. Maybe Camargo is good enough where he holds the job, and they, and they don't feel the urgency to do that. I, I don't think that's going to happen necessarily, but it's at least a possibility. Yeah, they have options, which is a good thing. Absolutely. Uh, we can move on from there. Let's talk about the, the bullpen a little bit, really specifically the closer situation. A lot of people were asking us uh, this week what we think about the closer spot. You know, Part of that's because of uh, Arroyo's Fiscal, you know, kind of having a couple of high-profile implosions and the fact that Daniel Winkler has been – uh, frankly, out of his mind. Uh, coming into today, Winkler has a 0.93 ERA and a 1.18 FIP in 19 in the third innings with 13 with 13 strikeouts per nine. He's been uh, pretty much perfect. Um, so obviously, you know, I think he's kind of been, he probably has an all-star case at the moment, actually. That's how good he's been. Um, and whereas Vizcaino, his numbers, his, in terms of ERA, don't look as bad as the rest of his numbers are. You know, 2.61 ERA right now seems pretty good, but a FIP about four and an XFIP about nearing five. Ton of walks. He's just not been very clean in most of his outings. And then, of course, you have AJ Minter as well, who's hanging around. He's walking the park. But uh, aside from the walks, he's also been good. So what do you think about the uh, closer situation? I think closer is sort of taboo in that I think, we all, yeah. I think we all kind of agree that an actual pure closer, unless you just have a dominant guy, probably isn't the way to go. But given that Snicker has shown the proclivity to lean toward one guy in the ninth inning, do you think it should be Winkler? Do you think that they should keep it going mm. with Aroidas for a while? Where are, you, where are you at with this whole thing? If we're going to play, I guess, the snit rules of baseball, which I guess we kind of have to right now, I think he's going to leave – Vizzy in there. I think it says a lot that right after he blew it against the Cubs on Tuesday night, he immediately went right back to him on Wednesday when there was a save opportunity. Personally, and I'm guessing you're probably in the same boat. I'm more of a you know game by game basis. If if you're facing the Nationals and you're about to face Bryce Harper and Matt Adams to lead off the ninth inning and you're up by one, then I would use then I would use Minter as my closer that night. Now, obviously, you can't always predict innings ahead who's going to come up, but if you're in I guess the middle tier of your uh, of their lineup, and you know that that there's a likelihood in the ninth inning that you're going to see Harper and Adams. Then I would save Minter for the ninth and let Winkler busy handle the eighth. Um, if you're going to face all righties and you know in, in the later innings, uh, off the top of my head, I'm struggling to find up with a team with a bunch of strong righties in the middle of the order, but I'm sure there's someone out there. <laughs> uh, then you know, then you obviously use Minter and more of the lefty setup role, and you roll with. Uh, personally, I think Winkler would be my choice against righties. He's not as dominant against lefties, but he's been basically. I think righties are two for thirty-six against him this year, and like oh for their last twenty, which is insane. Um, so me personally, I would do it on an inning by inning, game by game basis. But I'm guessing unless it gets to the kind of Jim Johnson level of of you just can't pitch him anymore, I think Viz will will kind of stay the quote unquote closer. Uh, with Winkler and 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 Vizzy or uh, Winkler and and uh, Minter being the eighth inning guy with a little bit of Shane Carl and Sam Freeman mixed in there too. Yeah, I mean, you did you did uh, hear Snit kind of say that they would at least consider using Winkler and Minter in that situation, but at the same time, his uh, his actions have sort of leaned toward Vizzy, and I think we have to assume that moving forward. Uh, I guess just on Winkler specifically, he, you know, he's 28 years old. He's been good at times in the past. Also, has had a couple of uh, interesting spells. Had some, has had some injury issues, all that fun stuff. You actually was was a starter for a long time with the, with the Rockies um, back when he was coming up as a prospect. Do you think any of this is real? Obviously, not 0.93 ERA real, but um, it feels more real than a normal guy that I would be saying with this. Like for instance, Shane Carl 
who's been incredible also. It doesn't feel like he's as sustainable as Dan Winkler does, but Winkler's stuff is so good that, I, I mean, I think he yeah. actually might be like legit, you know, quote-unquote closer kind of uh, guy moving forward. You know, it's interesting with Winkler, you look back and he was acquired, I think, at the uh, beginning of 2015, and he's a guy who underwent Tommy John surgery, if, if memory serves, Tommy John, and then he broke his elbow in like the second week of 2016, 2017, whatever that was. So the fact that through all of his injuries that you had not only one, but two entirely different front offices felt he was worth holding on to over all that time, keeping him on the DL, keeping him on the roster, um, I think says a lot about him. And obviously you don't need 30 years of scouting to look at his pitches and go, man, this guy can get big leaguers out. Uh, so I think that screams volume. I, I do think he has a chance to be a closer now. I never know if if it's more of a mindset thing or if it's just something that writers write about, about that ninth inning mentality, the three hardest outs of the game to get, et cetera, et cetera. I wouldn't hate to see him get a chance, but it's pretty obvious that what he's doing right now is being effective, and I'm not sure you necessarily want to start jacking with the middle of the bullpen when the later innings have been a little bit of a trouble. I guess the ninth inning has been trouble. So um, if he was to be made closer, let's say Vizzy gets hurt and he has gotten hurt in the past, um, I would imagine that he would be fine in the ninth. Now, again, you, you, I guess you have to kind of cross your fingers that he's not going to get spooked by that, you know, the big scary ninth inning. But absolutely, he has he has as good a stuff as anybody. Um, you know, we talked about it the other day. He he probably deserves to be an all star, even as good as he's been this year. We'll see if he can keep it up. But um, he does seem more legitimate than someone else like a Shane Carl, even though how you know Carl's been great. I'm not sure he's just quite this good. But um, absolutely, if something happens to Vizzy, I would be more than comfortable sending. Uh, Winkler out there on the ninth. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But also, are you worried about Minter at all? I think I'm not necessarily, but he's just he's been walking a lot of guys for a while now. Like at the end of yeah. last year, he was his, he had some walk issues in the minors. Um, this year, he's walking six per nine. It's a very small sample. It's twelve walks in eighteen innings, so it's not like it's anything to freak out about. But are you worried at all about Minter right now? Because I think I've heard some at least rumblings that people are a little bit worried. Maybe a little bit, but I think it just comes to getting throwing strikes consistently and I'm not too sure it's at the level of concern. He does have a sky high walk rate. I think part of it is hitters just don't swing against him. He has a pretty low swing rate against him. I think it's because they don't even see the ball half the time as much as his cutter and his slider move, especially a lefty. I can't imagine facing him as a lefty. So obviously you want to get his walks down, but I'm not sure it's at the level of, you know, having a real concern. Yeah, I'm with you, actually. I just think, uh, you know, people see that walk rate, and I understand why they're freaking out, especially after the fact that last year in the majors, he was, like, basically perfect in every way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the fact that he's uh, struggled a little bit with his, with his command, I mean, it's probably actually a little bit more than a little bit, I guess, uh, in terms of walk rate. The rest of his profile has been pretty strong, though, which is good to hear and see. Yeah. Uh, we can move off the bullpen for now. I got an interesting question that is about um, – Ronald Acuna actually, he's had, a good, he's had a good game on Sunday, which we should note. He has two hits today. Um, very, very uh, positive performance from him. So uh, view that through the prism of this. But the question comes from Kenny Williams, and he says, has the uh, has the evaluation between who has the higher upside between Albies and Acuna changed at all? And he uh, he adds, it seems like previous comps between Altuve and Albies were superficial because of height and all that stuff. But now perennial all-star seems like the floor for Albies. That's, that's the way you put it. That seems a little bit lofty mm-hmm. for me. But um, where are you at with those two guys when compared to each other? And also, what have you just seen from Acuna lately? Yeah, I think Ronald's had some bad luck. Obviously, he's he's at the league leader, you know, on the leaderboard of hard hit ball. And and I think his BABIP before today was about 310, which honestly seems low for as hard as he hits the ball. 
Um, so he is struggling a little bit. He struck out a little bit more than you would like to see. But again, you have to remind yourself, this kid, he's, he's 20 years old. He's going to have inevitable struggles. Um, and really, he's he's just had some some poor luck. I think he's off the top of my head. I think he's hit four or five right to the warning track that that just missed being home runs. So uh, he'll be fine. It's you know the Albies Acuna debate. I I don't know if we necessarily need to start and and not just you and this but you know who's going to be better, who has the higher looks. I mean, I think both guys are going to be stars. Personally, I think the world of both. They're going to be different players. Um, I think Acuna just naturally because he's a bigger guy is going to have a little more power to him. Um, if an Ozzy is, is going to do his own thing as a middle infield, I don't know if you, you know, you talk about who's going to have the higher ceiling. I think both are going to have high ceilings, high floors. I think both are going to have high floors just simply because of, of their glove and their, and their base running ability. You put that speed and defense in the mix plus defense. They're going to be valuable even if they don't hit. And obviously they are going to hit. So, um, I think Acuna will be fine. And, and obviously, uh, Ozzy's had about as good of a, f- a first two months as anybody could have possibly hoped, and and I don't see any reason why he can't at least at some level keep this up. Yeah, I mean Ozzy's not walking, which is a bit of a concern, and his OBP is kind of low, but the power's been ridiculous. I do think Acuna's ceiling is higher, um, and that's just that's not a shot at Albies. I think that's just because Acuna's ceiling is absolutely off the charts. Um, yeah. As is Albies, by the way, he's, he has a very high ceiling as well with the way that he's come in and done what he's done at his uh, at his age. I think Acuna's traditional upside is a little bit higher, but I'm not at all worried about Acuna. He was good today. He's hit the ball hard pretty much the entire time, and even with the bad luck, which I think you could pretty much see fairly easily he still has a he still had a 116 wrc plus coming into uh sunday and it's, it's going to go up based on sunday's performance so he's been uh strongly above average at the age of 20 um i'm not at all worried about ronald Acuna. uh he's very very good at baseball but i want to want to at least ask answer the question and I, I i can definitely see why people are a little bit worried there was a little bit of buzz there in the middle of i guess it was last week maybe even this week a little bit that Acuna needed a day off because he was struggling i never bought into that necessarily um I mean, it's not like crazy to think that if he struggles for a while, he's so young that you could want to give him a day off. But he's never been as bad as people wanted to make it out. Even when he was struggling a little bit more, it was mostly because of luck and like the way that he hits the ball hard. It's uh, he's definitely had some luck issues so far, and the fact that he's still been this good is pretty uh, pretty scary, honestly. I think Albies has been actually pretty lucky to, in some ways, especially with his home run to five ball rate, etc. But he's also been awesome as well. So uh, no shots here. And the the jokes about me wanting to trade Ozzy Albies will continue to the end of time. So thanks for Eric. Say, <laughs> thanks to Eric Cole for that. Um, but those those two guys, I can't really say anything negative about them because uh, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily want to compare them a whole lot. I thought it was an interesting question because of the fact that Albies has been so good and his upside is certainly higher than I ever thought it was going to be. So shouts to Ozzy for that. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's kind of similar to the Altuve versus Correa debate in Houston. It, you know, oh yeah, you it is that way. It's yeah. very similar to the action. And now you say that. I mean, the only caveat there being that Altuve is significantly older than Correa. The fact that Al, that Albies and Acuna are the same age, yeah. pretty much, is wild. That's the thing that makes it even crazier because those guys are so young and so young, like so young together and so similar in age. And yeah. uh, oh man, it's sort of an investment. Yeah. yeah. It's one of those things where uh, you're very, very spoiled right now as a Braves fan uh, to have those two guys coming up at the same time. Pretty crazy. Um, I'll, you know, In addition to that, it's sort of a nice segue to another young guy, not as young, but Sean Newcomb has been very, very, very good this season. Yeah. Uh, I think a little bit of that is uh, overstated with uh, sort of his peripherals, but he's been awesome. 2.39 ERA, 3.05 FIP, and nine starts this season. A lot of people asking about Newcomb and how sustainable this all is. You know, he's striking out a lot of guys. Walk rate is still higher than you want it, but much better than it's been in the past. So where are you at on Sean Newcomb? I think we've uh, pr- probably ne- neglected him a little bit on the podcast this season. So let's talk about him now and uh, just reference how good he's been, frankly. 
Yeah, he's been awesome. I mean, you look at him across the board, and he's every single category compared to last year is better. Uh, he's striking at 27% of the batters he's facing. His walk, weight, walk rate, uh, which has obviously been well-documented, it was 12.5% last year. It's down to 11.2% this year. As we touched on, you would certainly like to see that down around 10% or so. There's a handful of big leaguers with similar stuff at 10% walk rates who have shown they can be successful. I think the most encouraging thing for Nuke, even with the walks, he's, if not the league leader, he's right at the top of the leaderboard for um, what kind of, of balls the opponents are putting in play against him. He's not giving up a lot of hard contact. Um, I think he's only given up one home run since since the his first start of the year. Whether or not that continue, continue remains to be seen, but he's obviously doing a good job of not putting the ball where hitters are able to square it up. Um, again, he's a guy who's always had all the ceiling in the world. It was just a matter of if he could cut the walks, and up until this point, he's never been able to cut the walks. And, and we're seeing now, because he's limiting his you know free passes, um, he's really showing how special he can be. I'm with you. He's obviously not going to be a 2.4 ERA guy moving forward, but his FIP at 3.05 – uh, th- those are very good number two, if not number one starter, uh, numbers. And, and we kind of talked, I remember talking to you in the preseason, if the Braves are going to take a step forward, they need one of these young kids to kind of become an ace. Um, again, I'm, I'm not quite sure we're ready to call Newcomb an ace after, after eight or nine really promising starts, but he's been very good. And he's a big reason why the Braves have been able to turn things around. You just don't see, you know, aces quote unquote with, with four per nine walk rates. That just doesn't happen. But he can be good, and he has been good. And the 3.05 FIP is instructive. He has been lucky with BABIP, which you kind of mentioned. He's been, you know, he is he is inducing light contact, which is helpful. But that's still pretty low in, for expected value. You know, the, the ground ball rate's very encouraging. Almost 49% ground ball rate. That's something that he's going to have to keep up if he's going to walk guys. You know, he's been very good at inducing ground balls, which is definitely helpful. But there's also some luck involved there. Not too many bleeders getting through for Newcomb right now. But listen, through nine starts, you can't have possibly asked for more for Sean Newcomb, frankly. He'll be 25 in June. So he's not this like he's not he's not young on the level of Ozzy and uh, and Ronald by, by by any means, but at the same time, uh, Newcomb is still very young. His stuff is legit. We never really questioned his stuff. It's just more of if he can stop walking guys, and uh, the, the slight improvement there allows him to work and and live. If he's going to walk thirteen percent thirteen percent of guys, he can't really live there. But you know, ten eleven percent that's going to be very 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 possible considering all the strikeouts he's going to get and all the ground balls he's going to get. So. I uh, yeah again I mean moving forward do you think that three point that three point oh five FIP is an instructive ERA benchmark or do you think he's actually probably going to mm-hmm. be a little bit worse than that moving forward at least for the, for this season uh, for this year it's it, you know it's so hard to say I think he can at least be better than a, a three point five you know if he can get in the three point two three point three ERA range that makes him a very good number two um, and I, I I don't see any reason why it couldn't continue now you do worry with a guy who's really struggled to throw strikes really throughout his entire professional career that, you know, mechanically there's going to be a tweak or something like that. And all of a sudden he's going to start walking guys at the level he was last year, which is going to hurt his ability to be successful. But so far everything looks good. He's throwing more strikes. He's, he's getting ahead of hitters. And as he touched on, he's not throwing balls down the middle of the plate. His strikes are good strikes, if you will. Um, So yeah, if he can keep his ERA right around three, three, you know, 3.2, 3.3, even, that's, there's a lot of value in that, especially when you consider kind of where he was this time last year. So, uh, all good things for Newcomb. I, uh, you know, he's he's his emergence um, has really also kind of taken off some of the heat off. You know, Tehran obviously on Sunday struggled. Brandon McCarthy's had a rough month. Um, his ability to kind of be that stopper in that ace has really helped the Braves avoid a couple of skids early on. 
Yeah, he's been very good. You know, Fulte's been pretty darn solid as well, a sub-3 ERA in his own right. Um, nice to see McCarthy bounce back a little bit. After you know, those two really ugly starts in a row, he was pretty good this week. Um, but you actually kind of referenced this offline. You know, a lot of people asking us about trade scenarios in the starting pitching uh, area of the world. You know, Mike Sorok is on the DL right now. Colby Allard um, is you know, really, really close to arriving, I have to imagine. And Soroka's injury doesn't appear to be very severe. Could be a little bit of a DL, DL, DL manipulation on the Braves' part because of Anthopolis and his history with that. Um, you know, just sort of looking around to see, you know, everybody wants to go ahead and trade Lucas Sims and, the, and that kind of group of guys, Matt Whistler. Sims was not great today, I will, I will say, again, and it's not a big surprise. He actually came back up um, when they placed, when, when, they, when, they, when they parted ways with, with Bautista. But, uh I mean, do you see a, pitch, a starting pitching trade happening, whether to add or subtract? Because, I mean, McCarthy is a pretty obvious trade candidate. You have all these guys in the minors, whether it be Sims or Whistler and that in that group that could be moved, but for very very little value, you have to presume. But, you know, with Colby yeah. Howard so close and Johara also, I mean, sorry, Luis Gohara right there as well, you have all these sort of fluid spots. And you have the history, though, of the Dodgers last year, for instance, under Anthopoulos had, what, eight starting pitchers pretty much the entire season? So yeah. like, he's not uncomfortable with having all these arms, but I guess it it's also could be ripe conditions for, for a trade. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm asking. Like, What do you expect to happen with the, with the rotation? Because there is all these moving parts. I think it comes down to what teams are willing to give. And we kind of, in our little podcast notes, we mentioned that you know, the Dodgers, all of a sudden, I think three-fifths of their starting rotation is on the disabled list right now. Uh, Kershaw Rich Hill is almost perennial, perennially, peren, he's always hurt. Um, uh, so in that <laughs> sense, um, in that sense, you, you know, you wonder what a team like the Dodgers who are obviously trying to contend this year would be willing to give up, you know, to get a, a Brandon McCarthy back or, you know, a, a number five and Matt Whistler, even if they want to aim a little higher and try to get a Gohara or an Allard or somebody like that. If teams are willing to give up a bunch for some of the starting pitching depth, then absolutely. As you said, there's been, I think, eight guys have started games at this point. And while not ideal, if Matt Whistler has to be your fifth starter for a couple starts, I don't think you know, you're know you giving up on the season by any means at that point. He's not going to be a, a frontline starter for you. But as we've seen, he's generally good enough to give you five or six decent innings. Um, but if, if the return, or, or at least the uh, you know what teams are offering is a, a fringe bullpen reliever, uh, in double A, you know, a, a bullpen prospect for, you know, getting McCarthy for the rest of the season. I would hang on to McCarthy just because, you know, as soon as you start trading away these guys, then you're going to have injuries of your own. Um, but yeah, you, you look at Gahara, he's, it sounds like he's going to get a chance to start on Wednesday, obviously coming into the year on at least, you know, going by kind of the preseason projections, he was supposed to be the best pitcher in this rotation. So if he's able to pitch like he did last year, I'm not sure, you can reasonably send him back to AAA if if he's such a better option than someone like McCarthy or Tehran. Um, so we'll see. I, I, yeah, I'm with you. It's it's tough to answer just because you never know with pitching and you can never have too much pitching. And uh, last year, the Dodgers really liked to manipulate the DL and the Braves seemingly are starting to do something similar. But um, at the same time, if somebody's willing to give you a long-term piece uh, to kind of help an immediate need now in the rotation, then then why not? Right, and that's that's really what it comes down to. And they have they just have all these options. You mentioned Tehran; his FIP's now over five after his ugly start on yeah. Sunday. And like he had a couple of really nice outings in a row there. They strung together, sort of quieted the whispers on him. But 
Uh, he's not been great by any stretch of the imagination. He's actually been pretty lucky to have a 4.17 ERA right now, which is a little bit troublesome. I think he'll probably have a longer leash than most because of his track record and his history with the organization. But at the same time, uh, you know, McCarthy and Tehran are both spots where an upgrade is potentially possible. And you have Allard, who's been fantastic in AAA. You have Gohara. You have the young guys as well. There's all these all these arms are out there, and uh, if they again, it's, we're gonna keep talking about this, but if they keep competing at a high level and like being in, actually in the hunt for playoff spots, they're gonna start um, or at least continue to be a little bit more stringent with with these options. They're not gonna just roll guys out there and roll them out there in the way they probably would have in years past. So, yeah, McCarthy's yeah. McCarthy's instructive in that way because they could almost certainly trade him, but you don't you don't want to give that guy away because he actually has some value when he's healthy. You know, if he's if he's terrible, that's something that's something entirely different. But in the past, he's really never been bad. It's, it's basically he's been pretty good or hurt. Um, so if yeah. he's healthy, you want to probably hang on to him once you can get an actual return for him because you know yeah. insurance of nothing else is, is usually helpful there. Yeah, or to clear some money too. I mean, if somebody says, "Hey, we'll take McCarthy and whatever he's you know if he's owed ten million dollars the rest of the year, we'll take seventy five percent of that off." Then maybe you know give it would give the Braves some flexibility at the trade deadline to do a little something more. Um, but I'm with you. And again, it's just going to come down to what teams are offering and, and where the Braves stand over the next two months. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, pitching stats can be something definitely to monitor because, uh, it's very, it's very weird. It's like kind of not, not, not crazy to consider. And it's pretty, pretty expected in a lot of ways, but you're going to see a ton. I mean, I think Colby Howard's going to come up fairly soon. I don't know when or how, you know, something needs to happen for that to happen, but he's been so good at AAA and there's been so much buzz about his polish that it's almost going to be, uh, Hard to keep him down. And then you have Soroka, who was very good in three starts. I mean, he had he, his last outing was not necessarily ideal. He has that little, you know, he's dinged right now. But on the whole, you look, you look at all his peripherals. Aside from the really unlucky Babbitt, he's, he was actually quite good as well. So, and he's, yeah. is he still 20? I think he might be still 20, yep. which is uh, outrageous. Uh, all yeah. right, last thing before we get out of here. Uh, Dansby Swanson is back, which is good to see. Obviously, you know, he's, he battled the wrist. And uh, I think he's actually 0 for, 3 for, 0 for 3 today, at least as we, as, at the time of this recording. But... Uh, actually, yeah, I'm looking at it now. He has a 99 WRC plus for the season after being 0 and 3 today. 0 for 3 today. So we've he's certainly leveled off as the scorching hot start. What are you yeah. expecting to see from Swanson the rest of the way though? Because uh, I think we all knew he was going to cool off a little bit from the beginning, but the reckoning has come, and of course he missed all that time. So where are you with Dansby now before we get out of here? The wrist injury is the biggest concern for me. Wrist injuries can really jack with hitters. I mean, it was kind of what messed up Jason Hayward, and, and obviously Dansby was trying to play through. Uh, the wrist injury and uh, he just struck out again so he's 0 for 4 today it looks like uh, so it is a concern he was cooling down as you said you know he had such a great start with a 420 430 BABIP whatever it was through the first like three weeks of the season that wasn't going to continue it would be nice to see him show a little more power uh, I would hope that if he's if he continues to struggle for another week or so the Braves might look at a you know putting him back on the disabled list to try to get him healthy because that's not something you want to have him play through and permanently damage his wrist so it is a bit of a concern I'm, we aren't we shouldn't freak out over you know starting one for seven or whatever he is since coming off the DL but at the same time you need to get him right and uh, you don't want him going up there and swinging through pain or not being able to lift anything he did switch to the of course Kurt Suzuki's bat which is an interesting change for him hopefully it gets him some relief but um, I'm a little concerned about Dansby personally. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I'm a little worried. I have to say, just because of the fact that you know, 
the cool off was was there. I was I was never as worried as everybody else was last year, frankly. Um, but I also was tamping everybody down when he was when he was scorching hot at the, at the at the beginning of this season. So I think Swanson's just going to be a fine average-ish hitter that plays defense at a, at a premium position and does fine. Um, you know, I think he has obviously has some room above that, but for now, I think my expectations are pretty much what he's been so far on the whole. You know, a hundred WRC plus kind of guy with uh, with quality defense at shortstop, and that's a it's a valuable player even if it's not a superstar. Basically, that's kind of where I am with that, with Dansby. Yeah, yeah, I'm with it, which isn't a bad thing. You know, not everyone's going to turn into a star, but um, yeah, you hope for it's sake. Like if he can be a you know a two win shortstop regularly the next couple of years, especially if guys like Albies and and Acuna and, and obviously Freddie keeps doing his thing. And if Riley or a common, th- you know, you don't need, I guess what I'm trying to say is you don't necessarily need Dansby to become a superstar for this rebuild to work, right? You can, if he's a reliable glove, it, it's short with a, you know, an average or sub, you know, slightly below league average bat. I mean, that'll play. Um, obviously you would, you would hope that he's better than that, but if that is who he is at a cheap cost, that's not the end of the end of the world. No, I mean it would be it would be a slightly slightly disappointing for a lot of people because he was the number one prospect in baseball. But at the same time, like if that guy becomes an actual starting level player, it isn't a disaster. It's just not. Um, I think you I, there's again there's still room above where I, like sort of what I outlined there of what he actually currently is because he is still very young. I mean Dansby, I think we're we're all spoiled because of all the, all the twenty year olds killing the ball. But he's he's twenty four years old and he only has uh, let's see eight hundred plate appearances in the majors. So like. It's not like he's like this guy who is has to be just this moving forward. He's mm-hmm. he, he can be good. Um, my expectations are pretty low, but even right now, like he's already a one-win player this season in 29 games. Yeah, like, I'm not expecting him to suddenly be a four-win player, but if he's a two and a half, three-win shortstop, that's a good player. It's like it's yeah. like it's like it's like Ender Enciarte. Like he might do it in a, in a strange way, but it, you, you you look up and he has three WAR. That's a valuable player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You don't when when you're as good defensively as that. You don't need the elite bat to be a playable big leaguer. Absolutely not. And again, he's not he's not a bad hitter either. He's just you know, sort of less than inspiring. But that's so that's okay for what it is. Uh, before we get out of here, where are you at with this next stretch? Because the schedule gets a little bit interesting in the near future, especially when you're when you're talking about losing a series to Miami. And as we record this, looks like all the world that the Braves are going to be losing this game to Miami on Sunday. So. Uh, no surprise there, based on the uh, 9-4 entering the ninth inning score. But um, the rest of the schedule um, c- coming up here in late May and June is going to be not necessarily easy. So let's uh, let's go through that a little bit. Yeah, their next four series at Philadelphia, who, depending on today's games, will either be tied with the Braves for first or a half game back. Um, the Red Sox in Boston next weekend is going to be a monster. That's as good of a lineup as there is in baseball. And then the Braves come back home against the the Mets and the Nationals. So we will learn for sure. I think after that National Series, it'll be June 3rd, which is certainly at the point of it's not early anymore. And if they can survive the next two weeks against three really what appear to be really good teams, and obviously the Mets with with their pitching staff can can win a series pretty easily. Uh, we'll have to see how they do. But over these next uh, I think it's 13 games because one of the Mets series is a four game with the rain out. If they could go seven and six, I think it'd be huge. Even if they go six and seven, just based on how good those teams are, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. The schedule opens up considerably after that. I think they get the Padres, they get the Orioles, uh, they get the Dodgers who are on their way to sweeping the Nats, but the Dodgers this year are not what they were last year. Uh, but yeah, the next two weeks are going to be really, really tough. Um, and and we'll have to kind of wait and see. And who knows if they, if they kind of emerge – uh, out of this stretch, still in first place. I think that's when kind of the national media will really buy the Braves as a serious contender this year, because I would imagine 
uh, they will have played as tough of a schedule as anyone at that point. Um, but again, they, they do have to survive. Uh, you know, they, if all of a sudden they go three and 10 over the next two weeks, it'll be a different feel. Maybe they go 10 and three over the next couple of weeks. And all of a sudden they're one of the favorites in the national league to, to win the pennant. So, uh, it'll be a tough stretch and, and, uh, we'll have to kind of wait and see what they're able to do. Yeah, the, these next six games, especially, I think, are instructive. You know, two road series in a row at Philly and at Boston. Um, you know, I would take, you know, blindly take three and three there. Like, oh, absolutely. Let's just fast forward, and uh, you know, even two and four would be a pretty decent result there. I know the Braves are seventeen and eight on the road this season. They've been much better on the road than they have been at home in a pretty small sample. But um, just yeah. don't, just don't, don't get killed against Philly and Boston the next six games, and you'll be in a good place, I think. Uh, anyway, well, that'll, uh, wrap us up, I think on the podcast, my apologies for the audio issues for everybody and, uh, you know, live from a closet. Here we are. Uh, Scott, thank you for joining me, my friend, as always. And now we record just a few minutes later. It's just me coming back on the podcast to talk about the fact that the Braves came back from a nine, four deficit in the ninth inning to take a 10, nine victory over the Miami Marlins. A little bit of a change there in terms of uh, what transpired in this series. Look for all the world as if the Braves were going to be losing this three-game series to Miami, who that obviously would have been not great at home. But, uh, you know, everything stands in terms of analysis from previously on the podcast, but at least wanted to come back and at least acknowledge the fact that the Braves pulled off a crazy come-from-behind win on Sunday afternoon. That should probably leave a little bit of a, of a more upbeat taste in everybody's mouth as the rest of the uh, weekend sort of plays out here as we are you now recording, you know, 5.15 p.m., on Sunday afternoon, so I want to at least get that out there. Thanks again to Scott for uh, sitting through all that recording noise and all that mess that I had. Uh, don't worry, my apartment did not burn to the ground. And uh, the Braves came back and won, <laughs> coming back from a five-run deficit in the ninth inning. So we'll end on that note, but I want to at least tell you guys that I, I do know that that happened, so uh, there it is. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and all that fun stuff. Thanks for listening, as always, and we'll see you guys next week.